Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. I live music. Morning, noon, a whole night. Everything else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I dig. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until nine o'clock. The Sunday night special, the night we get someone in to pick the tunes. I'm delighted to say that tonight my guest is the one and only Dervler Crotty. Here's her first choice. I played all my cards And that's what you've done too Nothing more to say No more race to play The winner takes it all the loser standing small Beside the victory That's the destiny There you go. Uh, you can't go wrong when the show begins with ABBA and the winner takes it all. My guest tonight, Derv Lacrotti. I'm looking at your list for the first time here and there's some cracking stuff on here and I can't wait to get into it. But before we do that, uh, I, your, your Cavan credentials are of huge interest to me. Yes. We've had a few Cavan people on this programme and... There, there seems to, was there something in something in the water in Cavan or Who's that? Who have you well, Aaron Monaghan has been on the show. I didn't know Aaron. Yes, been on. fantastic. And uh, and Lisa O'Neill. Yes, and we had, I think we had other Cavan people too. And it, maybe maybe I just talk about it all the time, but uh, you know what? What was Cavan particularly uh, a hotbed of artistic uh, creativity when you were growing up there? Um, well, my mother uh, grew up in Cavan Town, and uh, she was greatly connected with the whole town and uh, her That's a classic friends, connected with the town. Well, oh, is it, there, it's so what, unconscious, was on, what, what, was she on committees and things? And she was on Tashka. Um, she was in a film club. Funny, I was thinking about that and, and for example, they, they saw The Meaning of Life really? when it was banned and I remember her wow. coming home and telling us about this fantastic sequence, oh, Every Sperm is Sacred. Yeah. So, um, you know, and actually I watched it fairly recently again there and of course it is the most wonderful sequence. And yeah, so I remember her telling that, roaring, laughing. And, but she was a pretty, she was progressive, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but she was great friends with the Healy's, with Una and Miriam, yeah. who are the older sisters of Dermot. And Dermot, yeah. And so Dermot was known to me and... Uh, you know, Mammy was very fond of him and very friendly with him as well. And, uh, you know, but he was the wild boy, you know. And, of course, McGahern would have been talked about around the house and all that scandal was happening when mm. I was young. And, of course, the ears were pricked up. And there were books in the house that were of a kind of the banned variety and which were probably somewhat banned from me and were in my parents' bedroom, but which, obviously, the Sunday drive mm-hmm. was a great excuse to go in and find the banned material and find out what it was all about. But so anyway, she was, so she was friendly with Healy and, and, and various of the other uh, literary stalwarts were known. Michael Harding was teaching my brother 
Jono yeah. at school. Um, so there was a big awareness of the literary scene, even though not everybody was. And there would be parties in Milshonok Brefney, which was the Healy's place in town. Mm. And uh, I, I went there as a very young kid. I was brought along as a 10 year old or something and had my palm read by Tom McIntyre and so on. But that's not to give the impression that we were always mixing in a literary and artistic milieu. We, we weren't, but there was, there were books in the house, there was music, um, and there was value put in those things. You, so. you do make it sound like Paris in the 20s, in, in a way. <laughs> but uh, Cavan in the 1970s and 80s, 70s, I guess. 70s, 80s. Um, you know, the perception would be uh, the whole country was a backwater and Cavan would have been a particular backwater. That's a perception. I suppose I was lucky enough, as I say, to be in a house with mm. um, a record player and I think most houses probably did have record players, yeah, of, of course, course and did. books. Um, well, what um, about the country and western system itself? Was that indeed, part of your life? No, well, I was aware of it. Big Tom and the mainliners. Yeah. That always made me laugh, you know, at the, you know, the double meaning of mainlining, which I was aware of when I was 16 or 17. I'm, in, just, you I'm know. just checking the list, but no, no big No, no, big no it's not there. But I went to a country school. I went to Lara. So the, the, there would be weekly in the, the hall, uh, country and western acts, I suppose it's a great thing people getting out and seeing live music, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad thing in itself, but when it's only that. And of course, the music that a lot of people were, you know, classics, Christberg and, uh, you know, also all that kind of um, eagles who do have some good tunes and all of that. I, you know, I was aware of all that and that, uh, there would have been a while where I was pretending to be into all that and I was headbanging to ACDC at... The discos giving myself... This is all very reassuring. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear this. Uh, your, your next choice, and I'm guessing it's in sort of a, um, a chronological order, um, to, uh, I guess it is, but Kate Bush. Now, you're, I, remember, I remember my reaction to Kate Bush when I first saw her and being kind of shocked, astonished, bewildered, thinking, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. What was it like for you as a young girl in Cavan? All the above. Mm. Everything that you've just said. Uh... uh the first, when did I come across her? It was probably Wuthering Heights, although moving this, this tune uh, was a B-side on The Man with the Child in His Eyes, which I bought. And I was trying to figure it out. I think bought it when I was about 10. I think my earliest record that I bought, I was thinking about it, was Joe Cuddy, A Coat of Many Colours, I think. Yeah. And um, I was eight it was 76. I did look this up and then very shortly afterwards I know I had, because we just had ABBA on there, I had Arrival ABBA and I had my little record player, there was a little portable record player of my mother's and um, just lying down listening to that and putting a penny on with some blue yeah, tack to, yeah. to make it not blue jump. Tack. And uh, I, um, think, I think we're the same vintage. Exa- I exactly. think we are, exactly, m- more yeah. or less. Um, so Kate Bush. So Kate Bush um, I had then, and, and as I got older, my hair got bigger. As I grew, my hair got bigger. And um, I used to, it was an insult, or meant as an insult on in the streets of Cavan. Hey, Kate Bush, oh, Kate Bush. And so that just made me walk taller. But when I was about 10, yeah, I got into Kate Bush. And it's oh, just an amazing creature. This otherworldly voice. I was really into reading um, Misty magazine, and there were all these beauties with great hair, and you know they were always sort of the devil's something, and that was all very exciting in 
Yes, very much. 70s, 80s, Cavan and uh, Kate, I think, seemed to be an amalgam of all of that. But she also wrote her own songs and played the piano and was yeah. all sorts of fantastic things. And um, I might have chose Wuthering Heights, but but I chose choose moving because it had otherness that intrigued me. And um, and still, it could be about any amount of things. And I, I love a song like that. Moving from Kate Bush, the second choice tonight from my guest, Derv Lacrotti, who's picking all the tunes. We were just saying when that's on, Derv, it's kind of astonishing how, how young she was when, you know, she wasn't much older than, than, than the kids who were listening to her. Thank and yet she was that. streets ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking I used to go to, for a few years in a row, I went to this Irish college in Valbriggan. <laughs> of all places, close to Fodrick. And I think I was my first time, it was my first time, and I was 10. And there were all sorts of rumours that if they heard just speaking a word of English, she'd be sent home. And I just thought that's the worst thing that could happen. But anyway, we were in these little dorms in porter cabins. And um, I don't know, I was after lights out and I was standing on my bunk singing uh, Wuthering Heights actually I can see it now <laughs> singing it across the way and the headmaster came in the door and was standing there for the whole of the rendition and then marched me off and several others who were out of their beds and five of us were made to stand outside the office while he pretended to call our parents um, but he, he you know he didn't and we weren't but I mean it was the horror of it but I think because of the terror and because of that memory I, I have the memory of standing up in the bunk singing it that's an early performance from you, though. Yeah, it is, I suppose. Do you yeah. think, do you think, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what started you in the acting lark, but do you think seeing someone like Kate Bush might have been as much part of it as anything else? Yeah, I, oh gosh, well, I think m- music was everything about that. I think it still is. Hmm. Whatever the mystery of it is, the impulse to do the thing. Um, but she was also clearly a, an actress yeah. and she could she was into mime and all sorts of performance and dance and all she had brought the whole thing whole, you know other people had done it but nobody like her at that time yeah a performer a yeah. performer above everything else mm. um, and the joy of that as a child and it doesn't sound like it you weren't particularly extroverted or a show off or any of those things that you might mistakenly associate with no, being an actor no I definitely wasn't yeah. um, I, w- I went to, when I went to school my father was the headmaster of the school in Lara and you know people were perfectly good and friendly and all of that but I, I really wasn't mm. uh, socialised you know and I was the eldest of the four of us at home so I, I really did live in a fantasy world I, I stayed in at lunch times and read not encyclopedias, but, you know, the, the child's version of it. And, I, you know, uh, I imagined a lot and I kind of went around mooning around a lot. And and is that um, because your dad was the headmaster and you didn't I feel you so could? I think somewhat, yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, and because I wasn't mixing with people outside of school from the school. And, you know, you're the master's daughter. Yeah. And you're the master's daughter right from the start. Um, so I was quite introverted, actually. Yeah. I was quiet, definitely. And I was very... Very much in a, um, yeah, fantasy world. 
no harm really. Uh, by the time I got to secondary school, I discovered cursing and I discovered attitude and I, <laughs> I discovered them with with aplomb, you know. Um, you found your calling. Oh, it's awful, really. But, uh, you know, from one extreme to the other and I developed a sneer and, you know, but that's the way. You know, you're, t- you're trying on all these different yeah. clothes, aren't you? And you're just trying to find um, a place that you can be comfortable, I suppose. You didn't go off the rails, did you? Because that can happen too, you know, when you go up to the big school. You know, suddenly, you, you know, if you go, go from being the headmaster's daughter to someone who's yeah. given cheek to the, the new I headmaster. Kind of, not, yeah. not cheek, but I discovered sarcasm yeah. and I discovered irony and I, you know, I did, you know, I did develop all of those yeah. dark arts. All right. And yeah. is that when the drama started at school? Um, yeah, quite late on, actually, at school, probably um, there was a, hold on now, they, they were doing a musical, The Sound of Music, uh-huh. and I hadn't really done any acting and um, they called out all these names over the intercom and I wasn't one of them and I don't know what it was in me but I was dead curious to find out what this was that I was excluded from so I suppose The cursing and the swearing included. probably wasn't standing to you at that point <laughs> Probably not I mean, it's not, You're not typecast as a nun at this stage uh, Well funnily enough then it was of course it was all the nuns in, in The Sound of Music but I wasn't called but I did go to Sister Josephine's office and pretty much demand an audition and I can't really say why I did. I don't know. I just, I didn't like to be excluded. And um, so they did audition me and they gave me the part of Max Detweiler in The Sound of Music. And right. he's the impresario. And, uh, you know, and I was absolutely terrified. I loved it and terrified then going on the first time. And I don't know, I went out and I seemed to know what to do. And I responded to the audience by... Not shrinking, but by, I don't know, letting them in, maybe. Yeah. I think maybe that's the thing. Not letting them dictate, but maybe reassuring them that I know what I'm doing. And, and you, did, you, did, you, did you know that you knew what you were doing until no. you, that moment you were no. on the stage itself? No. no, exactly. I didn't know what I was doing until I was doing it. Wow. Yeah, that really is the truth. Mm. Um, it's it's mysterious. And then I couldn't get enough of it. And so then I uh, was in musicals at St. Pat's, which was a, the boys' school and was a boarding school as well. And we did uh, South Pacific and Squeers. And uh, in, in Squeers, so I was Bloody Mary in South Pacific and I was Mrs. Squeers in Squeers. And I had this song in Squeers called Your Kind of Woman. And uh, it involved me taking off my little puddin' cap that I had on and putting on a feather boa or an approximation yeah. of a feather boa and being a bit sexy. I loved it so much. I really couldn't, wouldn't have been in any other place. But when I was a bit sexy with my thing, Dan Galogli, who is the president, <laughs> he used to sit in every night at the show. And, you know, we did it for maybe a week or 10 days or something like that. And every night, Dan would stand up and leave at that point. You're joking. And, yes, and I'd be able to see in the darkness the standing and the walking. I can still can see it in my mind's eye now, literally looking in. And I guess he came back when it was over. But um, that you, was remember, you remember these first performances probably better than you remember anything else, yeah, I imagine. Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just loved everything about it. Just loved all the crazy things that went wrong. You know, the smoke machine going out of control, going up onto someone's skirt and killing ourselves laughing and 
you know, loving being in all that company of boys because Loretta was the all girls school, yeah. and, you know, and I, I did a love being around the boys and Bill Henry making you up. And, um, you and the thing about this is it's not showing off. It's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's participating. It's, it's not just look at me, look at me. No. You've discovered something that you can do. Yeah, and that you love doing it and that you do with lots of other people. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I mean, I think that's, that's still a huge part of it, the social aspect of it. It's unbeatable that way. It, it doesn't, it's age blind, it's, you know, colour blind, obviously, you know, it's all of those things and it's a big social opportunity. David Bowie is your next choice. Interesting call as well, what you've chosen oh. from David Live. Uh, Bowie is the one and only, is the gateway drug yeah. to everybody else. And to a lot of other arts as well, not just yeah. not just music. Yeah. Performance, I yeah. think, how he performs this. Oh my God. Uh, I, you know, I aspire to the condition of David Bowie. City. To love in a doorway. To strangle some. David Bowie there and a sweet thing, um, candidate. And a, an interesting choice, the live stuff. But I think sometimes the live stuff Bowie recorded kind of gets overlooked, you know, because, well, his, his greatest hits could run to about 25 volumes, I guess. Yeah. And that's the thing. But you're clearly a big Bowie fan. You were you were performing that in front of me, <laughs> acting acting out. If you ever need anybody for a karaoke night, I think you might be the person. Oh yeah, yeah. It's what can you say? He's just so generous and big and mm. dramatic, and, and the range of the voice, the pleasure <clears throat> in the tone, and um, you know the the intelligence of it. We were talking there about. Uh, looking it up afterwards when you were, you know, when I was young. What's Tricketers? The yeah. blood of the Tricketers. Who's, who's Jean Genet? You know, yeah. what's all this about? You know, uh, and everyone, a puzzle. And and you made the connection there between moving and boy, Lindsay Kemp, and yeah. the mime artist. Mime artist, yeah. 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 Who so, was in love with Bowie and maybe Kate was in love with him and everyone's in love with everybody. And um, I never saw... Uh, David live, but Tony, my guy, has seen him live, saw him live a couple of times, and there's just endless envy about that experience. But uh, just to imagine being there, especially the early concerts, uh, anytime around Diamond Dogs, anytime around Station to Station. Yeah, when it was a complete shock, it must have been brilliant. Oh, yeah, I yeah. often regret never really seeing anybody at the moment when it was you know, a complete shock. What is this? I don't know what this is. Oh, that would have been great. Oh, can yeah. I tell you actually a story? It wasn't my first encounter with Bowie, but it was probably the galvanising one. Um, I was at school, let's say I was maybe 14 or something, or 13, and Christiane F came out. And our German teacher, Mrs Finn, came in and she said, girls, I've just been to see this very harrowing film. It's just awful, you know, teenage heroin addicts in Berlin and you should go and see it. It's so <laughs> awful. And so I said, OK, well, I'll go to see that. And, you know, went to the Magnet Cinema and, of course, they were all 
so cool. And um, in the middle of the film, of course, she goes to a Bowie concert and he's singing Station to Station. Mm. And I think Heldon as well, uh, Heroes in German. Oh, God, I was just, that's it. I'm, it's over for me. You know, I'm, I'm yours forever. And uh, so it had exactly really the counter effect. I mean, it didn't want, make me want to go out and do heroin or anything like that, but it did make me want to delve deep into Bowie. Let's talk about the movies for a bit, because it, it's usually the narrative when you talk to actors, they talk about the stage exclusively. And that's the thing. But oh, yeah. I guess if you're a kid growing up in Calvin, the movies is on television, probably where you're going to see your first performers yeah. and, yeah. and the, that's where you're going to see the great, Definitely, ar- the great yeah, actors, yeah, yeah. you know. Definitely home with the, as we know, flat, hot red lemonade, uh, sick and the great black and white films on the television. So Joan Crawford definitely was an early crush, very much so. Uh, you know, these and wonderful scripts as well. Oh, yeah. And Betty Davis. Yeah, so seeing all those films in the daytime. Yeah. Home. Sick. Sunday afternoons and things like that, yeah. Yeah. And again, really great scripts in in most of those movies. All those Billy Wilder films that would be on quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite a good good grounding. Not bad at all. You know? And in terms of the stage itself, um, did... Did, did travelling players arrive in Cavan and you, you, you were lit up by that? No, no. Uh, really, the first experience that I can recall was, again, was a school trip and it was up to see uh, a play in The Peacock and it was about um, the the execution of... Uh, in the Civil War of the former comrades uh, in the Irish Civil War. And um, we came up and went down in a minibus and on the way back down I sat up the front of my own reliving everything that had gone before. That is the truth. It's funny, you know, you have all these funny little signs but Mm -hmm. a lot of things excited me then. I was Mm -hmm. very excited about books and all sorts but I was so struck by this. Um, And then shortly afterwards we went uh, again school tour to Stratford and Coventry Cathedral and various other places uh, in Wales and England. But we did go to Stratford and we saw a performance of Othello and uh, Ben Kingsley and Neve Cusack were in it. And, um, you know, I was pretty opinionated about that, I remember, you know. And uh, so, you know, enchanted and opinionated, that's... Were you you less than impressed about it? Um, I think I was. Yeah? Yeah, I think I was. But I think I was also wanting to rewrite the play and I wanted her to try harder to get out of the situation. Just the truth of it. But that's, uh, you're really engaged with something you feel like that. Of course, yeah. As well. And I think we we come back to some of why that might have been the case a a little bit later on in in the programme. But do you think at this point, having seen these two plays um, and have had a good experience, were you starting to think this is what I want to do? Absolutely not. No. No idea. Ab- absolutely not. Well, let's, um, let's let's talk about how you get to that stage after your next musical great. choice, which, um, well, this this will sum up the era for a lot of people, the Smiths. Um, what did Morrissey mean to you? For a lot of for a lot of young people, Morrissey at that point, before he became a total agent, mm. was uh, was was the was the business. Yeah, uh, and the Smiths still are to me. Uh, I, uh, for me, those that weren't into the Smiths thought they were depressing. And those that were realised that it was a way of uh, laughing Mm. at it all.
what she said, uh, the Smiths. The choice of Derv Lacrotti is with me in studio again, singing along to that. I smoke because I'm hoping for an early death and I need to cling to something. Funniest lines ever written. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I it, love it, it. It was, it was, it, it was a massive, the Smiths was such a massive thing when you were, you know, I'm, I know I'm older yeah. than you, but when you were our age, it was a yeah, massive say thing. Yeah, 16 to, they broke up. I was working in Holland doing all sorts of crazy jobs. I was working in a factory at this stage and it was on the radio and something, Smiths, I said, what is it? And he says, oh, it's this, this band, it's, it's broken up. <laughs> I was there on the, on the production line crying. Yeah. <laughs> I was devastated. But, you know, sure, followed them the whole way through, but so witty. Um, so, uh, just like you've said there, there's there's joy and abandon in being into all the interesting things. Now, you, you, you just before we played The Smiths, I had asked you, had your experiences of being to a couple of productions, one in the Peacock, one at Stratford. Did you decide there and then, because you were very moved by it and very impressed by it and, and all the rest of it, did you decide there and then, this is what I want to do? And you said no. Um, did you have any idea at that point what you might do? Because clearly you had a you had a way with words. You were into song lyrics. You were, you loved your music. Mm. Um, did you have an idea what you might do? Because I know behind it all that you ended up doing law. That's right. Yeah. So um, you know, at an earlier stage, when I loved biology and continued to love it, I would be drawing pictures of esophaguses and stomachs and pancreases and all that kind of thing. And I think to my mother, this was great news because it meant I was going to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, no, that was that was short lived. I mean, there was a big interest in it. But uh, no law appealed to me. I think for more than anything, I, I wanted to change the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought you could change the world this way. And I, you can. I mean, the advent of Trump, we've seen uh, lawyers have become heroes or could be heroes. Mm. And, you know, thinking about the McLeibel case and so on, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, but I was a bit shocked when I went to UCD and found out that... Uh, you weren't going most, to change the world. Well, most people in my class weren't interested yeah. in that. Uh, Tweets was, it. You know, um, so that was a bit shocking. And then it didn't take me long to realise that really what I had to do was learn a lot of stuff by heart and apply myself. And there were very smart and um, interesting people in my class. But um, really, by the end of first year, I went, oh, God, oh, no, this is the worst thing. Really, the worst thing has happened. This thing that I've worked so hard for and that I wanted, my heart's desire isn't my heart's desire. I, I can't do it. It was awful. It really was. Um, And I stuck in there. I really stuck in there because I thought, really? You know, not great imagination, but I thought maybe journalism or just maybe something. I'll get the degree. And I was mostly absent. I mean, I was absent down in Dramsock doing plays. And did you get the degree, by the way? I did get the degree. I did. (laughs) I didn't cover myself in glory. They can't take it (laughs) off you, as they say. Yes, indeed. I am uh, BCL. But Um, Dramsock was the place. Dramsock was the place, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you weren't uh, playing, you I directed a few shows there. You were painting flats. You were yeah, you were doing something all the time. You were on committee. Um, uh, yeah, it was great, very exciting, and all sorts of friends. And uh, still, when I was doing that, still when I was living in Dramsock, I didn't know that I could make 
Well, you it's see, my career. This is this is what's interesting. You, you know, right at the beginning, you talked about being a kid walking onto the stage and feeling absolutely instantly at home on the stage. I love this. Mm. And you saw these plays that really moved you in ways that didn't affect the other kids in the class. And still, it hasn't the penny hasn't dropped. Yeah. But then you're a dram sock at university. You don't want to do the course you're doing, but you're loving dram sock. And you still don't know. I know. I mean, I suppose you would say that the atmosphere uh, was that career guidance. Being a performer wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a consideration. You might as well have wanted to go to the moon in some ways. And it was just lack of experience. And even though I did, you know, know some writers and so on, I still thought because I didn't know any actors that it was all sons and daughters and nieces and nephews of Um, and there was nobody to tell me otherwise really Mm. and and actually when I started at UCD quite a few of my um, contemporaries would have been going to Betty Ann Norton and so on and I was amazed at this you know I thought oh my god you know these people have had four years training and I thought maybe I thought they might go and do it but it's just funny isn't it it's conditioning and we don't even know Well I'm going to find out how it actually happened after this next record because it's bound to happen soon. You become it's it's bound to happen. Um, talking heads again, you know, performance again, not yes. just not just songs, the whole performance. Yeah. Um, did you go and see the movie? Did you? Yeah, I did yeah. The and big suit. Uh, I got up and danced, and I heard sometimes people get up and dance, and the night I went, they did. Brilliant. Here's uh, here's talking heads. <laughs> Born Under Punches from uh, Talking Heads, the choice of Dervla Crotty, who's with me in studio picking all the music. Now, Dervla, let's finally cut to the chase here. <laughs> Every time I ask you the question, so then you knew you were going to be an actor. Um, it hasn't happened yet, but now, surely, the time must have come. What happened? So, um, the year I graduated, 1990, a couple of friends, the Trinity diploma course was going at that stage and it was a two-year diploma off campus and uh, some people I knew uh, who had been on the course put my name down for late auditions and those late auditions were a a few weeks before it started and along I went with my pieces and I got a call back and I was told on the day there's a place for you if you want to come. Now did these friends of yours do it just for the laugh or did they do it because they really had your back and thought yeah. look we're going to do this for her because this is what she should be doing the latter they knew yeah. they yeah. knew and if they didn't do it for you you might still be faffing oh, around maybe I would have yeah who knows but they did do it and uh, you know I'm eternally grateful or or, or, or the opposite which is it so how, how, how quickly did things happen after that for you then so it did the two years and worked the hardest I'd ever worked mm. um, so we were in at half eight every morning and finished at six or something and then Do, you always Doing what? Because a lot of people would have no notion of what that might doing involve. Doing broadly um, acting, movement and voice but mostly acting and so in acting it could be eh, I don't want to get too technical I suppose about it but breaking it down to its real basics so objective which you spent weeks on or months on what do I want? 
and mm. obstacle. What's stopping me getting it? Mm. And really, that's they're the ingredients for drama. Do you learn a lot about yourself doing that? Yes, uh, I was a little bit older going in, and most of my classmates were younger. And I think I thought I was, um, you know, all sorts of interesting and mature. And I, I found out I wasn't. <laughs> so certainly in that sense, you find out. Um, yeah, uh, they were pretty good at pointing us in the direction of things that we weren't already good at mm. or schooled in um, they didn't break us down in an unkind way which some of the British drama yeah. schools had a, a reputation for um, uh, so yeah uh, for example you might go to the National Gallery and you'd pick a painting and you had to imagine what was happening and what had happened before and what was going to happen in that painting mm -hmm. and then you'd all come in and talk about that or you had to do a biographical piece for example I remember doing Frida Kahlo and staying up all night painting uh, these canvas sheets for my performance and it was great very exciting and became very close to each other and it was two years of super intense work and then boom out you come yeah. <laughs> to the cold realities of um, early 90s and what 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 do you do at that point? Is there a place you can go and say I'm available for work or what ha what happens? Yeah, uh, well, we all marched down to the equity offices and said, yeah. here we are. And they said, well, congratulations. Now you have to go and get some experience and then come back to us. Um, I was very lucky. I got a very early break. I went to Druid and I played Bella Manningham in Gaslight. Right. And of course, we got so used to the term gaslighting now, but this is where it came from. Uh, so a woman who thinks she's going mad because her husband is setting up all sorts of circumstances in order right. for her to doubt her sanity. Uh, so I did that and then there was a whole five months of nothing happening. <laughs> and then things started to happen and I played Katie Roach in The Peacock uh, and, uh, and then quite quickly went on to play in Well of the Saints and then play in the May, hmm. my first play with Marina, Marina Carr and well, let's, so on. Let's talk about those after the break. We're going to take a quick break now. Um, but uh, just before we do that, while those five months, and I suppose for a lot of actors, and it could be a lot longer, but during those five months, did you get, was your family and other people looking at you saying, you know, you've got a law degree now, you know, you shouldn't be hanging around waiting for a part that's never going to come. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I, I was intent on it. Having done the two years and having really, really worked hard at that, I knew that I had to give this a go. And I actually felt that the two years allowed me to stand up and say, I think I can, I think I've got something here. Mm. So give me a chance. You had the skills. <laughs> Next choice, uh, though this is, this is, this is a bed sitting Rath Mines if ever there was one. I don't know if it was <laughs> Rath Mines, but uh, this mortal coil. Was that, what, what was this late night stuff for you? Yes, for sure. Uh, it's getting, it's dressing up. It's um, being a, a, a goth, uh, but without being really into Bauhaus and so on. Although very aware of all that, but uh, this band again took me somewhere and still takes me somewhere. Swim to me.
And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until nine o'clock. Uh, Derv Lacrotti is my guest tonight, picking all the tunes before the break. We had uh, this mortal coil and song to the siren. Uh, Derbley, just before the break, we were talking about you getting your early roles. And I'm sure the first one is the most important one of all. But if I can jump ahead to the Marina Carr plays and the May, well, the May was the first one. Um, it, it strikes me that you were very fortunate to get into those plays by Marina because it meant that as a woman, you had really good parts. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the parts. You bet. Did you know Marina at the time? Did you know her work? A, a little bit. Yeah. I knew of her. She was a couple yeah. of years ahead in um, in UCD. And we'd met a couple of times and then, you know, just thought she's utterly fascinating. Um, and uh, yes, I had seen Low in the Dark. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we were, uh, I was aware of her to say we were aware of each other. I don't know. But um, yeah. But what it, what, it, what it meant was, as I say, you know, you, you, you could have been doing a lot of plays with small, unsatisfactory parts. For sure. And yet, so early on in your career, you're doing real parts. Yeah, well, Katie Roach was a real part uh, written by Teresa Devey. Yeah. And that's been resurrected as one of the early plays written by a woman that, you know, that wasn't entirely overlooked. Yeah. And Katie is a fantastic role. And then I was very lucky to play Molly Byrne, The Well of the Saints, which is one of one of Singh's great plays and I got a great review well great in the sense that I remember it as a Dervla Crotty plays Molly Byrne as a prick teasing trollop yeah, you, you would remember that all right. uh, which I thought was one of the best reviews that I've ever had actually because that's exactly how I did play her and I thought that's exactly what I intend so I was getting really good opportunities and to be honest, I was seizing the opportunities as well, but no doubt about it to to have landed up in the May and then two years later, Portia Coughlin, uh, which was just such a gift of a part and which I lost myself in. And it it was part of the new wave, really, new theatre history and hugely exciting and fulfilling. And How do you approach those plays of... Uh of Marina, say, you know, where there's a strangeness about them and I'm wondering how, how much you as, as as an actor need to be fully aware of what's going on when sometimes the audience doesn't necessarily know exactly what's happening and doesn't really have to either in some ways. You go in full tilt, I think, is the thing. <sighs> Whatever it takes. Mm. So y- you give yourself body and soul and you've got this landscape um, to work with. Uh, those early plays, say for example, Porsche Cockney, a very specific way of speaking, uh, a kind of dialect. Um, and being from Cavan, having an ear for some of that Midlands mm-hmm. sound and, uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning and you're at it already is the first line. Porsche's uh, her 30th birthday, she's drinking brandy. <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember I was 28 at the time and there's this line, 30, half my life's over. And I thought, you know, that's a really serious line. And the audience roared laughing at it. And of course, you're allowed to laugh at it. And it is funny. And it's also heartfelt. Yeah. So I think what you do or what you do is you take it entirely seriously. And it's up to the audience 
what they find funny, what they find arresting, yeah. powerful, terrifying. Is it, is it more difficult to do a play that's a little, a little, a little more towards the edge of, of experimentation, let's say? No, I don't think it is. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, I've always wanted to inhabit a world of the imagination. Yeah. And I love that these aren't real places or they, they're real to you. Yeah. <clears throat> they're very real to an audience. But, you know, there's nothing quotidian about it. Mm. There's nothing kitchen sink about it. Um, but is it more difficult to do a play where you're, when you're not in a kitchen and there isn't a table and chairs and a, and a dresser? No, I don't think so. No, when you've mm. got these amazing mm. uh, flights of language and not when you've got the intensity of these emotions and not when you've got the high octane humour, not when you've got all, everything turned up. I'm looking at your uh, soundboard now and I'm just imagining just turning everything up to 10 there or, you know, 11 if it's spinal tap. And Marina can do that. Yeah, and that's what you do and that's the thrill of it. And when I go and see it, it's thrilling. Um, Don't hold back. And why hold back? Theatre anyway isn't about, you know, Film and TV create realistic spaces. They can you can go right into the <clears throat> nose hairs of a character. You know you can look at the dilation of a pupil. You can't see that on stage, but it's a different thing. And I think the further away from a discernible reality we go, the more interesting it is. Yeah, yeah. And then a relationship then with a writer uh, like Maureen, I suppose, in your case, mm. and, and others to Tom Murphy and other people. Yes. Um, but. Uh, th- that you absolutely trust and love what they do would help as well because you've no doubt in your mind that if this isn't this isn't nonsense. I'm not going to get yeah. a bad script here. This is how good be, does it get? Because yeah. some actors, I guess, a lot of actors are handed scripts and they may not necessarily feel they're particularly great. Yeah, yeah, of course that happens. But then you have you know the power of no. <laughs> yeah. Or you've got a job to do. Which yes. Way, yeah. Well, that's the way it is. Some people say this one's for the bank this one's for me or this one's for the mortgage, this one's for me. And yeah. um, I've tried in my career to make them all for me. <laughs> Future Sound of London is your next choice, I see. Um, Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. Well, so many songs again I could have chosen. Uh, this represents a period in my life when I was out dancing at every opportunity. Uh Going to sides, first of all, going to some pretty dodgy places around Dublin, um, having a wonderful time, dancing to house music, techno, you name it, drum and bass. That was the exercise I got during my 20s, also riding my bike, I guess. Um, joy, again, abandoned, dancing in fields, uh, <laughs> meeting wonderful people, um, dancing with all my family, still do it. Don't do it enough. Uh, So this represents my dancing years. Future Sound of London, Papua New Guinea, the choice of uh, Derv Lacrotti, who's with me in studio tonight. That, that, uh, from your dancing days. Yeah, Sounds like you were quite dance. a dancer. 
Uh, I I still go to Donald Deneen. Yeah. Not yeah, quite right. enough, but I want to be there every month. And would you have left, the, you know, gone off the stage of the Abbey and then stayed, headed yes. straight out dancing? Yes. As opposed to the flowing tide or someplace? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was the denizen of every late night spot, really. Yeah, I loved it all. Uh, but dancing, uh, I keep, it's funny, I'm hearing myself saying so often to you, going to another place. Yeah. <laughs> And I like to do that. But going out dancing in those days, you were getting to that other place with lots of other people. And there was a great atmosphere of coming together. And uh, Dublin discovered dance, everywhere discovered dance. When I came up first, a great friend of mine, uh, Pascal Lyons, hello Pascal, he used to take me out dancing because we used to go to the gay clubs when I mm. came up first. But apart from Leeson Street, there was nowhere to go dancing, really. Mm. And, and back in Cavan, we used to go, I, I would go and see live bands all the time and Blessings was a great place to go to in Cavan Town. I had friends in bands, the Fireflies and so on. And they were joyous times. So I wanted to continue that when I came to Dublin and found, actually, there's nowhere to go and no one to dance with. So I'd go to, when Pascal would take me out, I'd go dancing with him. And then this started to hit. And uh, as I said, there were some pretty dodgy places to go, but they were great places. I would leave parties once the guitars came out and head for sides. And I would go on my own and just dance. Really? Yeah. You see, when you talk about going to the other place, and you you have said that a few times, Mm. it kind of suggests that, and I'm sure it's a cliched thing about actors, is that they're they're always looking for the other place because there's no them. You know, they always need somebody else's words and they're always performing somebody else's emotions in some way. But that's tell me a little bit about that, mm. because what what an actor does is not as I've, I've deliberately given you the cliched version of it, or the, right. the, the commonly believed version of it, that actors are um, empty vessels that need to be filled by other things yeah. and going to the other place. So what's, you know, what's, what's your actual place, if you know what I mean? It's very interesting because if you are an empty vessel, you have to open up and allow all sorts of things to come through you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is when you're at your best. That is what's happening. But it's very hard to do that and to give voice to that and allow other thoughts in that aren't your own and another voice. You're speaking through your body. It's your voice. But you're looking for transformation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have to go there nightly on the stage as best you can while collaborating with other people, while being aware of not bumping into the furniture and so on, while being completely aware of an audience. So it's a very interesting holding all sorts of things in balance, holding several different states. Sometimes, for example, if you're playing, I found this when I was playing Wild because it's so perfectly pitched. You're your own sound mixer, you're your own director. You're speaking and you're trying to speak accurately, say, and all on one breath because that's the, the funniest way to do it. That's how the audience will hear it best. And you're teeing yourself up and so there's a voice in your head saying okay not not just hold it for a moment and go and that's when you drop it that's when you drop the laugh line and then there's another voice preparing you two lines ahead and there's someone else going well there's something going on there in the left of your vision just be aware of that and so it's having several voices in your head like you're wearing headphones and these instructions are coming through and 
that's what we do or that's how I experience it. And is there a price to be paid for that? Uh, sometimes... It's a big ask, isn't it? Yeah, it is a big ask and sometimes you don't get there. Yeah. Maybe the worst thing is when you feel that there aren't enough voices or you haven't got there or there's a hollowness or there's a one-dimensional quality. But you keep looking, so you keep on trying to find more dimensions and usually it means cutting yourself freer, cutting yourself looser, trying out new things, taking risks. Um, making it al- alive, not being safe, not saying, oh, I've got to my safe place and I'll just stay here for the next 20 minutes. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not interested in doing that. You know, and uh, when, you, when you come off the stage after a night where it's gone well, mm-hmm. what sort of state are you in physically and mentally? That's a great question. I think is sometimes it's relief, and I've talked to other people about this, especially when you're, say, on a press night or first preview or one of those big, everybody's running around going, good luck, good luck, oh. Mm. And a lot of people are invested and you're trying to find space for you to do your thing in Mm. it. But you understand there's a lot riding on it. Um, You will feel relief. So, but on a night where you've gone somewhere, you feel like you've... um, you've Maybe a little bit out of breath and maybe you feel like you've... Uh, pushed yourself further, say, as an athlete. Mm. Um, sometimes you feel it as a physical thing. Um, I was very lucky recently to play Gertrude to Andrew Scott's Hamlet in the West End. Mm-hmm. And I was parachuted in, which meant that I wasn't in rehearsal or whatever. I came in and boom, one Tuesday night, there I was on the stage. And I continued for another two months. And we did the closet scene, which was super intense. And Andrew is so alive. I've never encountered an actor like him. He does a brilliant thing one night and completely jettisons it the next night. Really? It's yeah. Just, yeah, it's just not there. Wow. And you know it won't be. And you wonder how long will the little ghost of it hang along. And he never really uses it twice. Extraordinary. Yeah. Never met anyone like him. And you're trying to deliver at that same thing. And you're, you're also trying to be present with him, ready for anything he throws at you. And when I would come off after that, I'd have to do a quick change into uh, the burial of Ophelia and I would be panting, like literally sweating, panting, uh, barely able to articulate. If there was something I was trying to say, my sentences weren't really coming out very straight. So I don't know what that is. You're in um, a state of high disturbance, but it's great. That's Mm. where you want to be. That's the excitement That's the drug. Your next choice is Reckoner, Radiohead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, keep them going. Do you dance to Radiohead? Well, you can sometimes. You can, Sometimes in a strange, slightly disjointed way. Yeah, you you can dance to everything. As Radiohead Reckoner, Dervla Crotty is, uh, is with me in studio. Dervla, one of the things, and I know this is the question you'd be asked by someone who doesn't understand theatre at all and has never acted on the stage. Um, the whole idea of, and I'm just trying to tie it in what you were talking about before, and how you, in, in terms of performance and so on. Everybody watching is thinking, how does she remember the lines, right? And that, of course, that's, that's not what you're doing. You're not actually no. remembering them, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But when you're talking about all this 
the way you immerse yourself in the part and all the voices that are coming at you. Whereabouts does the where do, what whereabouts in that picture comes the bit that you have words to say, at a, and, and you have to say them in the right order at the right time, and a lot of words. Well, in terms of remembering the words, is the Hamlet's advice to the player, you know, suit the word to the action, the action to the word. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is. It's uh, we're having a conversation here, but what we're trying to do is come to a better understanding of each other, maybe, or in specifically here to come to you're looking to come to a better understanding of what I do, and I'm trying to. Um, encapsulate that for you. So that's our script. Mm -hmm. That's so as long as you're playing the action, the, and you've chosen the right action. Um, so I'm hopefully not trying to lecture you. Yes, but, but I'm we're using, exploring together. I'm using my words off the top of my head, and you're answering off the top of your yeah. head. Um, presumably influenced a little bit by having answered this question before, I guess you know. But at the same time. You've got Marina Carr's script to deliver. That's a different thing, though, isn't it? Or Shakespeare's script. You can't go off piste. No, of course you can't go off Um But that's what it is. You spend at least a month with it. You know, you practice it. You say it many hundreds of times. It becomes, it goes into the marrow. Yeah. And by that uh, stage, you're... second nature. Yeah, by that stage, you're not remembering it yeah. in the sense we could recall maybe from school trying to remember what the next line of a poem yeah. is. It becomes, it translates into impulse. Yeah. And um, Fiona Shaw said a brilliant thing. She said, of course, now, the confidence and wonderful confidence of her, of course I never forget my lines because the next line is always the necessary thing to say. Uh, well, but that's more or less what it is. Uh, yeah. And when, it's, and when a play is over, you know, you've, the run is over. Are those lines then gone? You either press the keep button or the erase button. And it's, it's, it's kind of as simple as that, yeah? Pretty much. It's going to be, yeah, you, you might come back to a performance. If you know that you're coming back to a performance, yes, you unconsciously. And you might refresh a little mm -hmm. bit, but you more or less won't need to. And if you know that you, it, you can make space... That's it. And, you know, if, if you keep your mental faculties, will that last forever? Could you, could you return to a play after 10 years and do it again? Without You'd have to relearn it if yeah. you came back after 10 years. Yeah. I think you would have to. But it would probably have lived in you. Yeah. So it might have deepened. Yeah. I haven't had the experience of coming back to the same part after 10 years. Um, but I did play the May in the May where, what, 20 years later where I played Millie, the daughter. Yeah. And before I went into rehearsal, I could hear all the other voices. Really, I wow. could hear Joan O'Hara's, I could hear Alwyn Fuerres, I could hear how they parsed a sentence. And then when we went into the rehearsal, that started to disappear. But I was nearly alarmed by it. I went, oh my God, I'm just going to reproduce Alwyn's. Oh, there. But that's, that suggests, though, that, you know, you know, like, like junk on a... On a computer you know that to say everything's kept somewhere on the computer maybe it's all all those plays yeah, all those words you've ever spoken are and there it's all the words we've ever spoken imagine if it's true of all oh. of us <laughs> well okay i think i need to hear a song quickly <laughs> millie jackson mm. uh, i didn't see this coming she can get a bit rude millie jackson is this a rude one um it's off a rude album but um no i think uh oh caught up yes okay oh, if loving you is wrong i don't yeah. want to be right yeah been in love with a married man. That's rude, but that's not what I meant.
I'm Millie Jackson just stopped just in time. Millie Jackson there, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Dervla Crotty uh, changing the mood on the programme tonight with the great <laughs> Millie Jackson. Um, you mentioned earlier, Dervla, that you have played uh, Ophelia. No, you mentioned you played Gertrude with Andrew and Scott. I have played Ophelia. You also played Ophelia. Yeah. So I just want to talk for a minute about the roles, some of the very famous roles for women that you've played. Um, we talked about earlier on uh, just your very first, your very first performances, you you've played good roles for women. Yeah, but you've played Peggy and Mike. You've played Portia in The Merchant of Venice as well, That's as well right. as Portia Coughlin, and Ophelia and Gertrude and many others like that. Um, it's often said that there aren't many great roles for women, but when you start to list them, there those are those are some pretty good roles. Yes, and I'm currently playing Ren of Skya. In the Tom and Murphy, I played Arcadna. Yeah. So I've been and and Masha and Three Sisters. Well, let, let's so let's talk about Chekhov in, in a separate little sure. section. But 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 for now on on these sorts of uh, let's maybe let's just take some as an example. Peggy and Mike is a role a lot of people would know. Um, how do you feel about that role yourself? Well, and I, I've played in the Playboy. I've played Peggy and Mike and the Widow. Yeah. And greedily, when I was playing Peggy, I wanted to play the Widow. <laughs> <laughs> just um, but ah, it's such a privilege to have this opportunity to play these roles they're so complex you know pegging a woman the last woman to fall in love gives her whole soul away and then takes it back mm. um, glorious language you know, the the widow, somebody who's maybe murdered her husband, you know, and seen all her children die is the only one to pity him in the end. And, you know, they're they're the obvious uh, c- complexities. But um, oh, I don't know. It's like being an opera singer and getting to to sing Madame Butterfly and, mm. and all those great roles. Yeah. It really is. I mean, that's probably the equivalent uh, when you get the opportunity of these roles. Uh, and what about Shakespeare then? Because um, the roles for women—I mean, I've I've seen performances of, say, Hamlet, where they they don't seem to bother too much with Gertrude's role or Ophelia's role, or you know, they 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 sort of sideline it in some way. They don't make the most of it. I feel you have to fight for your characters. Yeah. So you might be really lucky and have a director that very much wants to put those characters front and center. And Robert Ike in the performance that I talked to you about uh, with Andrew Scott did. And he did uh, increase the stage time of both of those by putting in scenes that were non-scripted, you know, um, Claudius and Gertrude running around on their wedding night, you know, playing hide and seek and so on, Mm. you know. Um, But if you don't have all of that, you have to make all sorts and you have to fight hard to flesh out this person. So, for example, when I played Ophelia, I played it at the RSC and uh, Matthew Warchus directed it and he was wonderful. Uh, Ophelia has the mad scene. She doesn't have an awful lot Mm. else and then she has the mad scene and she gives out flowers, let's say. And I had this idea, I said, because we were doing it contemporary and I said, well, this girl is judged to be mad or suffering from something. So what would happen? Well, she'd be medicated. She'd be medicated up to her eyeballs. So what if... 
what she gives out is her own medication. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, you know, you need some of this. And you'd, now, it's an idea. Um, and I thought it was a good idea. And I fought hard for it. And at one point, they wanted me to try out something else. And I did try other things. And in the end, they said, OK, we're going to oh, go with this Because I thought idea. the RSC would not play a ball with those sorts of Well, it depends on the director. Yeah. Um, but he did. He, want, he wanted to do that in the end. Um, so it's an instance of trying to make your mark and trying to have authorship. And I think it's very important to take responsibility yourself for authorship of your own role. Um, and these are great roles. These Shakespeare's women are complex and fascinating. Sometimes are front and centre. Porsche is, of course. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky to work with Trevor Nunn on a pretty landmark production of that. And he gave such, she gave me a training. He really brought on my Shakespeare. He really taught me about contrast and how to use the language and how to have it heard. And he did a really landmark production that I think changed a lot of people's minds about the play. Some people felt that the play was inherently anti-Semitic and he changed their mind. Did you feel you fitted in pretty well at the RSC? I've heard people say that they find it forbidding and unwelcoming and all that kind of thing. I was very welcome, yeah. I felt, yeah. yeah. And I got to play Ophelia, I got to play Asta in Little Eolf, Ibsen, and I played La, La Madrachita in Tennessee Williams' Camino Real. Um, so I got a really good bite at it. And it, it was wonderful, you know, I was 28, 29. We spent all of our time, a lot of time up in Stratford, a company of over 100 actors, uh, three stages alive all the time. Oh, it was an education. It was a privilege. I had the best of times there. OK, we'll talk about the Druid Shakespeare after this, I think. Mm, okay. Who'd do it far better, if you ask me. <laughs> um, your next choice is uh, Sly and the Family Stone. Terry, you're scoring very highly tonight. This is great. I'm loving it. And that's Sly and the Family Stone there, if you want me to stay. Derv Lacrotti in studio with me tonight, picking all the tunes. Sly Stone. Now, uh, Derv, talking about Shakespeare before that, um, and you had that wonderful experience, many, a long time with the RSE, lots of, lots of productions. Yeah, I did two seasons and I went back actually to Marina's Hecuba yeah. on a one-off about three years ago. So yeah, I've spent... A good bit of time there. Now tell me about the Druid Shakespeare then. Because you were what, Henry IV? I was, yeah. I hate to point out the obvious, and gender <laughs> wars are, are on, but uh, <laughs> Henry IV was a bloke. Yes, and Henry V was played by Ashling O'Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. So Ashling no, no better woman. Yeah. No better woman indeed, playing my son. And how does all that, how does that, how does that function without it being a distraction, if you know what I mean? The the intention was, well, Gary said she wanted to do these four plays and she didn't want to spend a whole summer 
surrounded by a bunch of fellas. <laughs> she said, it just be my worst nightmare. But no, there were deeper things as well. Um, the big argument is that you're in an imaginative place anyway. Yeah. Um, you're looking at Aaron Monaghan playing Richard III mm-hmm. or you're looking at Marty Ray playing Richard II. So, you know, you know it's Marty Ray and you know yeah. <laughs> Richard II is a almost ancient king of England. Well, what, what, do so, you, what do you have to do? I mean, I've seen Maxine Peake play Hamlet as well, right. actually. So what, what, what do you have to do when you're playing Henry IV? You know. I, like Ruth Negger playing Hamlet, mm-hmm. you, we didn't play, I didn't play Henry IV as a man. Right. In fact, I went to Gary quite early on, or I said to, to Francis, our designer, I said, um, if you want anyone to volunteer their breasts, I'm up for it. Because I thought, well, look, will we just take it to the ultimate place? And say, of course I'm not a man. And yeah. what is near the most obvious feminine physical attribute? And we did, we went with that. And so at the end, when Henry IV was dying, we had a gosh, see-through black uh, negligee. And, uh, and we said, sure, we've never uh, said, imagine a cod piece here or, yeah. or, or let's put an actual cod piece or we never had any, you know, peeing, standing up jokes or anything, although that was flirted with. I'd say but, it was uh, tempting. Not delivered. I'd say it was tempting. <laughs> um, and so then, we didn't do any of those things. So essentially, really what you've got to do, what you've got to grapple with is power, the cost of power. For example, with Henry IV, what being sleepless does to a person. Yeah. You know, what intense in- insomnia does. Um, what is ambition. Um, what is it like to betray somebody? What is it like to cross the Rubicon? What is it like to be a disappointed parent? All of those things you have to explore. And then you also have to work very hard in the muscularity of Shakespeare's language. You also have to convince without, with your authority that you are a king. Yeah. The thing, the thing I like about Druid doing Shakespeare, and indeed other Irish companies I've seen do Shakespeare, in Irish voices, is that I find it easy to follow. Yeah. The RSC can be very difficult to follow, and particularly some of the English actors who have got a way of delivery that it might mm. be impressive in one way, but you can't actually hear what they're saying. Yeah, or you might feel it's distancing, or you might feel it represents a class. Yeah. So you break all those things down when you speak with relatively neutral Irish accents, yeah. But I think the language, the Shakespeare language suits the Irish voice yeah. and, a, and a cabin voice in particular. Well, they say that uh, as uh, spoken English in his day yeah. was a lot less accented, you know, in the particular well, RP that, that way. Elizabethan English. I'm sure, well, certainly it's in Fermanagh and I'm sure it's in Cavan as well. Oh, Gosson. Tra- traces of it. I'm, yes, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm Ogis. A, I'm I love Ogis. It's odious. I'm a feared of the wind. That's King Lear, isn't it? I mean, oh, people yeah. used to say that yeah. at home. Isn't it just... On a, on a, on a windy night. Glorious. Now, speaking of Cavan, uh, you want to play Cavan's finest, Lisa O'Neill. And isn't she just Cavan's finest? She is the real thing. <laughs> Love her. I'll dance from the grave I'll not have it said Brian I was kept away from the dark 
I knew there'd be some Cavan music tonight and there it is. Lisa O'Neill, the choice of Dervla Crotty, who's, uh, who's with me in studio tonight. Dervla, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, but before I let you go, um, again, that thing about roles for women, uh, and you've played many of the great, great roles for women, and most recently you were in The Cherry Orchard. Yes. Chekhov, um, directed by Gary Hines. This is Tom Murphy's version. Um, you knew Tom well. Yes, that, 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 and this is the first. Is this the first production of of Tom's work since he passed away? It is, yeah, yeah, and he's with us every night. I bet he is. <laughs> it, it finished. It finished at the at the in Galway, but it's coming to the board gosh. That's that right. On yeah. the eighth of April, to the or to the board five gosh. performances only. Wow, and what was that like? Uh, for well, you? we did. Um, we we opened one week and then the next week we did the live first live broadcast yeah. of an Irish play and performance to worldwide cinemas, but also to uh, including cinemas in Ireland. So we knew that there were people in sold out cinemas in yeah. Dublin, for example, <laughs> watching us. So uh, we did a dry run the first night and that was where all the nerves happened. And then the second time I just went, oh, well, here we go. And so. It was dedicated to Tom with love. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get over anything, really, isn't it? And what about Chekhov? Do you enjoy Chekhov? Love Fre it. Of course, Freel was a big Chekhov yeah. fan as well. Yeah, yeah, I love it. You know, he eschewed, to some degree, plot and said, these people are very interesting in their own right. And um, as Marina says, sure, they're all bats. I mean, that's true of most plays and of most people, I think. But it's certainly true of Chekhov. They're all bats. Um and uh, wonderfully so. And I think Gary has really, this truly mined the comedy of it and the sort of, you know, the, the human comedy, if you like. And... Uh, and you play Madam What's-Her-Name, as I've called Skye her for years. or Lubov or Lulu. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, again, great role for a woman. Yeah, she's a beautiful character who wants to hold on to everything and just can't. I mean, she's her generosity overwhelms her and all of her best attributes betray her in some ways. And she's a hopeless romantic. And, I, you know, you can't help. I have fallen madly in love with her, I must say. And she's cost me a lot because I'm giving away things and <laughs> I'm exploring the generous side of my nature with her. Are there many bad roles in the wake of what's happened in recent years and people being much more aware, are there still people people writing what you might call unsatisfactory roles for women? Uh, I doubt it. Yeah. I don't think so. Or at least we're seeing new, great roles being written. And at the moment we have Our New Girl, a new play by Nancy Harris, two fantastic female roles, and Aidan Kelly's playing The Narcissistic Man. And uh, we've got Corn Exchange at the Abbey, and that's at least half and half. Um, directed by Annie Ryan. Uh, I just don't think anyone can unsee what we've seen now. Yeah. And no playwright wants to be diminishing or diminished. And playwrights are generous people with a great curiosity and a great love, usually, of humanity even if we are destructive and so on. So nobody wants to write that. And it's not in the culture anymore. Yeah. The culture is changing. So I think it's transformed. I think it will have transformed uh, women's roles. Um, it's all good. There are no real baddies in this. There were just people didn't see what was happening because it was 
business as usual. You spoke very eloquently at the time. And I'd say, I'd say that's something you're, you're glad you did. I'm glad I did. I wasn't actually tabled to speak that day. Somebody dropped out. So I came in. And, and I would say that Fiuk was great at the Abbey. And I'm very grateful to him for the wonderful roles I played in there. And so there was no malice in any of it. It was just something was happening. There was a head of steam coming and we didn't even know it. And, you know, you would sigh when you would see a lineup. or I used to count. I did. I've counted this. I've counted women for years. Oh, look in that ad for Guinness. There were two women and 19 men. It's just a habit of mine. And lots of us have that habit. And something happened. Suddenly it broke through. Suddenly a lot of people found their voice and said, you know what, this has been happening for ages and we're really bored with it. And it behoves you and you're better than this. Saying to, say, the men in charge, you're better than this. You don't want this. So we're pointing this out to you. Let's all do better. As a final question, Dervla, and uh, I would ask actors this question a lot when I I meet them. Why is it, do you think, that we... We go to plays. Why is it we need that strange ritualistic experience of going into a room and watching people pretend to be somebody else? Why does it work? There are all sorts of things. Probably the live element is inherently exciting because while you think you know what you're going to see, you, you don't. I mean, anything might happen. It is true. I remember someone saying that years ago and I thought, oh, that's so mean. They just want something awful to happen, like someone to not come on and of course that happens. So... But now I think, well, if there's an extra level of excitement there, also the truth is, when you're playing something, it really is different every night. And I think an audience tunes in on that, even if it's the very first time they've been at the theatre. The, the live element gives it an edge. And when you're in an audience, you are part of the whole event. Again, even if you're not consciously, there's something in your whole person that recognises that. This this gathering of humanity and what um, but what can we what can we get from it do you think when it works what do we get from it given that you know the world is pretty much in a state of chassis at the mm-hmm. moment um what what's the real value what what do we get from going to the theater mm, collective transcendence <laughs> we, we'll leave it there Derba, thanks a million your last choice is forbidden colors uh david sylvian and Ruichi Sakamoto. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.